We are in Luke chapter two. I'm chapter four, verses fourteen to forty-four. So if you if you would please find your seats, and we will begin with the reading and preaching of God's word. for the reading and preaching of God's word. Heavenly Father, we come to uh, worship and we come to sit and submit under the reading and preaching of your word because we want to be citizens of the kingdom of God because we want to be oriented toward you Because we don't want to be too comfortable here where we are aliens. We want to live with the priorities and purposes of the kingdom of God. So Lord, help us, shape us, speak to us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 44. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. 
And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down a cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. This is the word of the Lord. With malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right as God gives us to see the light, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. How many of you guys recognize those words? This is the uh, second inaugural address of Abraham Lincoln, March 4th, 1865. Uh, famous words spoken on his inauguration day following the Civil War, which remains the bloodiest war in American history to this day. Uh, and inaugural speeches are notable because they kind of set the tone for the term of the president. Uh, they lay down their agenda. And, and nowadays, a lot of people talk about the first hundred days of a president's term, right, to determine whether or not he's effectively keeping the promises that he had made. And in last week's passage, we saw Jesus' baptism, which Luke in Acts 10 calls the anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power. So this shows that the baptism serves for Luke as the inauguration of Jesus as the messianic king, because you anoint kings. 
And having begun his reign, we now see in Luke 14 to 34 that Luke positions Jesus' inaugural speech, his address, uh, as as taking place in the synagogue in Nazareth. And he gives us a glimpse of Jesus' first days uh, of ministry there. So this is the king's agenda. This is the ruler's program. And we can break down the passage uh, in the following manner. And that's the king's message and the king's ministry and the king's mission uh, in the last part of chapter 4. And the main point of this whole passage is that today we must choose to come under the rule of Christ the king. Uh, That's the main point of this passage. Now, verses 14 to 15 introduce us to the newly anointed king and the initial reaction of the people. And it says, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit and led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness for a period of testing. And now he returns from there in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, which is the region he, uh, his, home, uh, his parents, he grew up in. And it says that a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. The word report here is the Greek word from which we get the English word fame. In our celebrity culture, so many people seek fame, right? Sometimes even ministers of the gospel succumb to that temptation trying to build fame, to build a social media platform or to court book publishers, solicit speaking engagements, and sometimes even resorting to controversial statements and headline-grabbing gimmicks. But these verses tell us that it's not a publicity stunt but the power of the Spirit that leads Jesus to the fame and glory he initially receives for his teaching. It's not the eloquence of the preacher or the perceived relevance of the preacher, but the preaching of the Word of God in the power of the Spirit of God that counts. And that's what Jesus does. And after the Babylonian captivity and the destruction of the temple, the worship of the Jews had dispersed out of the temple because it was destroyed to the synagogues, which became the new focal point of Jewish worship. And it was customary for the, for the men and the leaders of the local Jewish communities to read a passage of scripture and then to teach in their weekly gatherings. And so Jesus apparently partook in this regularly, and he was initially very well received. It says that they were be, he was being glorified by all. And verses 16 to 20 uh, give us an example of one of Jesus' sermons, which Luke places here as Jesus' first address as the anointed king. And these verses are structured chiastically, uh, meaning that they have a mirroring structure uh, that funnels kind of the attention to the center, uh, center of of the narrative, the passage. So modern writers put what they think is the most important, what they want to emphasize in the end. Ancient writers put what what they wanted to emphasize in the middle, and they had kind of mirroring elements that pointed to that middle. Uh, So to show you, in in verse 16, it mentions the synagogue, and the synagogue is mentioned again in verse 20. Verse 16 says that Jesus stood up to read, and in verse 20, Jesus sat down. Verse 17 says that scroll was given to Jesus, and that he unrolled the scroll, and in verse 20 says that Jesus rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. So this kind of structure, chiastic structure, focuses all the attention on the scripture that Jesus cites from Isaiah in verses 18 to 19. 
And these verses are a combination of quotations from Isaiah 61, 1-2, and Isaiah 42, verse 7, and Isaiah 58, verse 6. And it's not uncommon uh, throughout Scripture to find different passages of Scripture uh, kind of stringed together, spliced together this way. Uh, one of the best interpretive principles when we're reading Scripture on our own is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Because scripture is a unified uh, single book uh, with, with the divine inspiration. And because, uh, because it's all interconnected, uh, you, can use the less, the, you can use the more clear parts in scripture to illuminate the less clear parts. Uh, and often there are connections that if you use the cross-references in your Bibles, it often leads to very helpful and uh, insightful uh, uh, details. And so, uh, so that's what's happening here. Jesus is using these passages together, uh, and, uh, and they all point to, they're, they're all prophetic passages dealing with the coming of the Messianic King. So this is what the Messianic King is all about. This is Jesus' program, his agenda. And, and this citation is also structured chiastically. So to proclaim good news to the poor in verse 18 matches to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor in verse 19. And to proclaim liberty to the captives matches to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So these are all images of deliverance that parallel the description of the jubilee year. In Leviticus 25, uh, 8 to 17, uh, God commanded that his people observe what, what's called the Jubilee year. It was called the year of the Lord's favor. On the 50th year, which is the year after seven cycles of seven years, it was the, uh, that they were supposed to celebrate Jubilee by canceling all the debts that were owed, all financial debts, and they were supposed to free to all the slaves that they had. Uh, and this was the year when everyone, would, every slave would be redeemed and every debtor would be forgiven. And, and Messianic King is the one who proclaims the good news of Jubilee, of liberation of slaves and forgiveness of debtors. So this message obviously has social implications. Uh, but we must be careful not to reduce the message of King Jesus to a mere social gospel. Because uh, Jesus was not, uh, as some of the revisionist historians like to claim, a uh, political or socialistic revolutionary. Jesus never attempted to stage a political revolution to topple the Roman Empire, nor did he ever seek a socialistic revolution in which the proletariat class would overthrow the bourgeoisie. Instead, he sought to create a countercultural community, a con contrast community of transformed disciples who would live under the rule of Christ the King and who would embody the kingdom's principles. And we know this because Luke uses these images as metaphors of spiritual forgiveness and liberation throughout the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. The primary debt from which we need forgiveness in Luke is not financial debt, but spiritual debt. So he says in Luke 11:4, this is the Lord's Prayer, Look, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The primary loan forgiveness in view in the Gospel of Luke is the forgiveness of our debt of sin. And the primary liberation in view in the Gospel of Luke is also our liberation from slavery to sin. And let this be a reminder to all of us that your biggest problem right now in your life is not that you don't have enough money. It's not that it's that you have a debt of sin that you can never hope to repay. 
Your biggest problem in this world is not the oppressive, unjust world that holds you captive and keeps you back, but it's your slavery to sin that is the biggest problem. And Christ the King offers good news that He brings forgiveness, that He brings freedom, if only you would humble yourself before Him by repenting of your sins and believing in Him for salvation. So when verse 18 says that Jesus was anointed and sent by the Holy Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor, it does not mean that God's salvation is only for those who are economically poor. Because if that's the case, half of us would not be saved. The Gospel of Luke does have a special concern for the poor, but the poor here is a generalization, a category for all those who are of humble estate, as Luke 1.52 talked about. And those who have humbled themselves before God and therefore are open to receiving the grace of God. And that's why later in Luke chapter 6, 20 to 26, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. The poor in this passage, in Luke chapter 6, are compared to the prophets of God who are rejected by the world. And then the rich are compared to the false prophets who are acclaimed by the world. And that's why the parallel verse in Matthew 5, 3 explains it a little bit further. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's why even the rich tax collector Zacchaeus in Luke 19 can get saved. Because even though he is rich... He is poor in spirit. With all of that said, generally speaking, uh, it's still true that most of those who respond to Jesus' message are those who are poor. The economically poor are often, though not always, spiritually poor. And that's why Jesus says in Luke 18, 24 to 25, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The rich are often too proud and self-sufficient to humble themselves before God. So Paul speaks of this reality in 1 Corinthians 1, 26-29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is God's salvation plan that those who claim to be wise and reject the word of God would not be saved. That those who profess their ignorance and submit to God's wisdom that they alone would be saved. That those who claim to be rich and noble and powerful and claim that they don't need God would not be saved. But only those who humble themselves and acknowledge their weakness and desperate need for God would be saved. That's the way in which God has chosen to save so that only He would receive the glory. And that's why it said that Jesus proclaims good news to the poor. It's those who have humbled themselves under the rule of Christ the King that who humbly serve others. So have you humbled yourself before the King? If as Christians we find ourselves gravitating toward and associating only with the powerful and the rich, then we should let this inaugural address Remind us 
that the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news to the poor. We still haven't addressed the central and therefore the most emphasized element of the chiasm, and that's verse 18. Uh, the recovering of sight to the blind. It's the one element in that whole structure that doesn't have a matching element. It's right at the center. Uh, it's what our attention, our eyes are directed toward. And, and Jesus literally opens the eyes of the blind uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, a couple occasions. But there's also an important motif of spiritual blindness. Speaking of his disciples' need for his teaching in Luke chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus uses a parable of blindness. He says, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And, and then he continues in uh, verse 40, that a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So that's Jesus is saying that, that they need him, his discipleship, as one who sees, to show the blind man to see, uh, as he does. Uh, and in chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus mentions those who are seeing, yet do not see. So it's referring to spiritual blindness. They have eyes to see, but they don't see the spiritual realities. And this theme of Jesus leading his blind disciples to see as he does is fulfilled in Luke 24, where two of Jesus' disciples are on the road to Emmaus, and the resurrected Jesus joins them on their journey. And But it says in chapter 24, verse 16, that, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And it's only after Jesus interprets to them all the scriptures that spoke about him and pointed to him. And it's only after he blesses and breaks bread with them. This is essentially the first worship service presided over by the very resurrected Lord. It's only afterward, he says, that their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's the goal of discipleship in the Gospel of Luke. The end of discipleship is that the people's eyes may be opened to see Jesus as he truly is. To recognize who he is. It was uh, typical in Jewish synagogues for, for uh, someone to come, speaker to come and to, to read the scripture standing up. And then after reading the scripture, he would sit back down to give the instruction, the exposition of the sermon. The, the sermon, really, of the, of the passage. And then it's because of that, after Jesus reads and then gives the scroll back and sits down, it says in verse 20, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were waiting for him to speak with rapt attention. And, and Luke summarizes Jesus' sermon from that day into a single sentence in verse 21. Jesus began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word today is a significant theological word in Luke's gospel uh, because he uses it repeatedly to highlight the fact that the window of opportunity, the hour of salvation is now, this very moment. James 4, 14 tells us, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The day of Scripture's fulfillment and the day of salvation is today, not tomorrow, which you may or may not have. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, I urge you to consider His invitation to respond today. That hour of salvation, that window of opportunity is not to be postponed. It's today. 
the Lord saves. And verse 22 tells us that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. It seems at this point they didn't quite grasp the gravity of everything that he was saying. But they're starting to get a little clue because their amazement turns into skepticism, which off, as it often does. And they murmur among themselves, Is this not Joseph's son? Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus has just made a grand, audacious claim for himself, and people begin to question his parentage. Now, notice that over the last couple of chapters, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the Messianic King, has been the central issue, the main issue at hand. And as baptism, God the Father declared that Jesus is the, His beloved Son, and Jesus' genealogy following that declared that He is the Son of God, and the devil tempted Jesus by saying, if you are the Son of God, do such and such. So the question of His identity comes to the fore again, and the people are asking, is not this Joseph's son? Whose son is he? We know who that is, Joseph. He's a nice guy, sure, but he fathered the Messiah. The Son of God. He fathered the King. Legally, yes, it's true that Joseph is Jesus' adopted father, but the deeper reality that the people do not yet grasp is that Jesus is the Son of God. And so seeing the skepticism of the people, Jesus anticipates their objection and he says in verse 23, Doubtless, you will quote to me the saying, the proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus is anticipating that the people will ask him to perform signs to prove himself. Prior to this, Jesus was ministering in Capernaum and he performed miraculous signs there. And the people of his hometown are basically saying to him, Hey, show us the stuff. I mean, prove to us that you are who you say you are. A person selling a cure for baldness cannot himself have a receding hairline, right? So it says, that's essentially what's going on with the proverb is, Hey, physician, heal yourself. You're so good at healing other people's sicknesses, you should not be sick yourself. Show me that you can do this if you are who you say you are. And verses 24 to 27 says, Jesus uh, issues a stinging rebuke to them. Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up. Three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. In verse 19, Jesus declared that he proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. Another, another way to translate that is to say it's the year, the acceptable year of the Lord. And that same word acceptable is used in verse 27 when Jesus says, No prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So ironically, even though Jesus has come as the Messiah and as the king who declares the acceptable year of the Lord, his people, the very ones he came to save, find him unacceptable. And so Jesus 
alludes to uh, 1 Kings 17 and 18 in the time of the prophet Elijah and Elisha when God worked miracles on behalf of humble and believing foreigners instead of for the proud and unbelieving Jews. So this is a stern warning, warning that Jesus is issuing. He's saying salvation has come from the Jews. Jesus is Jewish. But if you stubbornly refuse to believe, it will not come to the Jews, but only to the Gentiles. This is an early hint of the fact that Jesus comes to save not only the Jews, but all peoples, all nations. Good news to the poor. And the people in the synagogue uh, understand this point exceptionally well. And they say in verse 28 that, that they were filled with wrath. And look at how fickle these people are. They go from glorifying Jesus to speaking well, and speaking well of him and to wanting to kill him on the same day. I don't know why, knowing that this is the nature of humanity, that we ever hang on people's words of approval like it defines us, right? This is what man is. They try to lynch Jesus by throwing him off the cliff. But Jesus escapes through their mist and went away. The king's message. This is the king's message and it confronts us with the choice. You can either reject him as your king or submit to him as your king. There is no neutral middle ground. The people of Jesus' hometown make the wrong choice. So verse 31 tells us Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, a different city in the same region of Galilee. And we saw in Nazareth an example of the king's message. And here in Capernaum, we see an example of the king's ministry. As Jesus did in Nazareth, he teaches people on a weekly basis on the Sabbath. And verse 32 tells us that the people here too were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus is seen as the one who declares the word of God. So in his sequel, the book of Acts, Luke traces the growth and spread of the word of God. He talks about the word of God as if it had its own agency. He says the word of God continued to increase. He says the word of God multiplied. Uh, so the mention of Jesus' word here tells us that Jesus is one who is speaking from God and for God. His word is not empty, but it comes with authority. And that's what the people found impressive about Jesus' teaching. But how did the people know that his you know, word possessed authority? It's not referring to the fact that he just speaks forcefully or eloquently. It's referring to spiritual authority and power. So verses 33 to 37 give us an example of that authority. It says in verse 33, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. The fact that this demon is unclean suggests that something about it is spiritually defiling. Right? In the Old Testament, especially the book of Leviticus, there are meticulously detailed instructions on distinguishing things that are clean and things that are unclean. So the general principle seems to be in the book that what is clean reflects the wholeness and order of God's creation. And what is unclean reflects some kind of deficiency or deviation from God's wholeness and order in creation. So to give you an example, animals that conform to their own kind are considered clean and fit for human consumption. But animals that confuse their kinds, for example, fish that don't have scales and fins, or flying insects that have many legs and are considered unclean. 
a person who has clean skin as well as a person whose entire skin has been affected by some kind of color discoloration are considered clean. But a person who is partially covered with skin disease is deemed unclean because that person represents a deviation from the wholeness and order of God's creation. That whole system is intended to point to the fact that there is such a thing as a creative order, that there is such a thing as wholeness, and that something is amiss in the world, and that eventually God's sending his son to make everything right again, to restore that order. Now, that's the fact that this spirit is unclean shows that this demon, this spirit, is not in sync with the natural order that God instituted in creation. It's a spirit that is not in proper relationship of servitude before God. It's a rebellious spirit. It's an evil spirit. Now, even though the Nazarene Jews did not recognize Jesus' true identity, the demon knows immediately who Jesus is and sounds his alarm in verse 34. Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He's saying, we have nothing to do with each other, Jesus. We're unclean. You're the Holy One. Why interfere? Let me be. And this demon is nervous and defensive here. And it's interesting that the demon, even though it's one demon, uses the plural pronoun us twice. He's like a golem in the Lord of the Rings, right? I think the demon here is uh, speaking for himself, but, but also for the man that he has possessed. He's speaking like he owns the man. He's saying, if you want to get to him, you will have to get through me. If you want to destroy me, you'll have to destroy him. So here's an instance of conflict between the rightful king, the coming king, who has the Holy Spirit, and this rebellious, unclean spirit. And Jesus responds decisively in verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits. And they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. The word rebuke, it could be used more generally just to refer to anyone rebuking another person. But especially in this kind of uh, text uh, in Jewish context, the word rebuke is the technical term that you use to refer to the subjugation of evil spirits, to subdue an evil spirit. And by his word here, Jesus subdues the evil spirit. He silences him and expels him. And Jesus silences him most likely because he doesn't want the demon to reveal Jesus' true identity. Uh, this is confirmed by verses 41 to 42. Read, just skip ahead for a second and read 41 and 42 with me verses. Uh, it says, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. So people need to believe in Jesus on his terms, on the testimony of his word. And it's not time yet for Jesus to go to the cross to die for the sins of his people. So the demon's testimony regarding him is premature and inappropriate. In this way, Jesus separates the unholy union between the man and the unclean demon. And he accomplishes the feat of not only exercising the demon, but also protecting the man so that he is left with no harm. 
This amazes the people and they talk about, once again, not just the miracle, but they focus on the word. What is this word? His teaching that is accompanied by such authority and power. I don't know if this is new for, uh, for a lot of you. There's some people obviously in our culture are skeptical about these kinds of stories because uh, our culture is very materialistic and naturalistic and if there's no naturalistic explanations or material causes, we assume that it cannot exist, right? Uh, but I think that's, uh, that's a logical fallacy, right? It's almost like a drunk person. Uh, someone uh, uh, used this illustration, I think it was... Uh, Plantinga, uh, a philosopher in Notre Dame, he says it's like a drunk person that goes, that's looking for a key that he dropped on the street, and then he only looks under the lamp. And he said, Why are you looking only under the lamp? It could be anywhere. He said, Well, because that's where the light is. It's got to be here, right? I mean, that's kind of what the drunk person does. That's kind of what we do when we assume that just because there are no naturalistic explanations for things, that no real explanations, no such phenomena must exist. C.S. Lewis warns us in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Demonic power may be less apparent here, but it's as real in the atheistic West as it is in the animistic East. A materialistic dismissal of the demonic is not a sign of maturity, and nor is a superstitious fascination with the demonic a sign of spiritual maturity. Because whether we know it or not, all of humanity, Ephesians 2, 2 tells us that all of humanity, apart from Christ, are under the authority in living under the prince of the power of the air. That's a reference to the devil. The devil is real, and demons are real, and we will see more and more of their manifestations in our society as well as we become increasingly pluralistic and people uh, experiment more and more with false religions and the occult. Even among our church members, we have people who have personally experienced demonic oppression, and, and we have people who have witnessed themselves exorcisms. In fact, surveys among Christian missionaries serving in areas where there's not a big gospel presence still reveal that one of the primary ways in which people come to believe in the word of Christ is through this kind of powerful encounter when demons are exercised. So if you, if you are a believer, this passage teaches us that you should never fear. Because the point of this example is not the power of demons, but it's the power of Christ. Because with a word, Christ rebukes and silences and expels the demon. And as Christians who have been united with Christ by faith, as Christians who have been possessed by the Holy Spirit, we have the same authority that Jesus here wields against the forces of evil. You can rebuke evil spirits, and you can silence them and cast them out with the word of Christ. This is a liberating message for those who live under demonic oppression. If you visit a lot of the animistic countries where the gospel of Jesus is not widely known, the vast majority of the people in those countries live in fear. In every store you go to, every, nearly every house, there's an altar to a spirit or an idol of some kind because people believe that they must appease them 
these false gods and demons in order to get blessing or find success. Many people are extremely devoted to these false gods because not because they want to serve them, not because they love them, but because they fear the consequence of missing a visit, missing a prayer, missing a sacrifice. And even in atheistic cultures like ours, secular cultures, they, that disbelieve spirits, the devil and his demons stretch out their tyrannical rule, leading people into sin and idolatry. But Christ the King has come to establish his kingdom. That's the good news of this passage. And if you come under his rule, you are no longer subject to the powers of these evil spirits because Christians are under a new regime. We have a new government. We have a new king. And this king is full of grace and truth. That's the good news that's proclaimed here. And this king reigns with justice and righteousness. And we love to serve him and worship him. That's the good news that we get to share with the people around us. Not only does Jesus have authority over demons, he also has authority over diseases. Verses 38 to 40 tell us afterward, read with me. Jesus arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house, that's Simon Peter. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on our behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Um, this is uh, before the discovery of antibiotics. So a high fever, which could indicate an infection of some kind, uh, would have often been fatal. Uh, and, and the people uh, appealed to Jesus for help. And Jesus, interestingly, rebukes the fever. Um, it could suggest some kind of demonic origin for this and, and, a, and an attempt to disrupt Jesus' ministry. Uh, but uh, I think here, at the very least, it's a personification of the fever to showcase Jesus' power, the extent of his power. Um, because uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's a disease, right? It's an inanimate thing. Like it doesn't have, can't listen to you, can't hear you, it doesn't respond to your calls. But Jesus commands, he rebukes the disease like, like a well-trained police dog, right? That says, you know, sit and sits and go and it goes, roll around and rolls around, bark and barks. He commands diseases. That's the extent of his power. Whatever disease you can think of, the most the incurable diseases, the terminal diseases, before the Lord of creation, before Christ the King, Messiah, he, all he needs to do is speak. And he will heal. And be sure to notice the graciousness of our King, how tenderly he ministers to the people. Look at verse 40 one more time with me. Now when the sun was setting... All those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. A lot has happened already in one day in Capernaum, right? The exorcism, the healing of the mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law. And, and now the sun was setting. It's the end of the day. Everybody's tired. Yet Jesus continues his ministry into the night, healing every one of the sick people that were brought to him. Everyone. And Jesus attends individually to each person and lays his hands on them. Jesus didn't need to do that. We know from Luke chapter 7 that he can heal simply by saying a word. 
But instead, intentionally, he takes every single one that comes through those doors and lays his hands on them personally and heals them. Why? Because that's his way of caring for them. Isaiah 43, 1 says, Now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by name. You are mine. This applies to all of God's people. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, and you are not an anonymous blob among the masses. Jesus knows you. Christ, our King, knows you personally. He knows your ins and outs. It says in Luke 12, 7, that even the hairs of your head are numbered. God cares for you. And in your weakness, in your sufferings, in your failures, He is with you to lay His hands on you, to comfort you and guide you. And that's the kind of King we serve. Not an aloof, high-handed king, but a gracious, compassionate king. A king who has all authority and power, so you never need to fear coming under the dominion of anyone else. That's the king. That's the king's ministry. And finally, and briefly, in verse 42-44, we see the king's mission. He says, and when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Um, in the next chapter, in Luke 5.16, we're told that it was Jesus' habit to withdraw to desolate places to play, pray. So it's, I don't think, a stretch to assume that here he withdraws to a desolate place to pray. Um, uh, the kind of, this kind of regular withdrawal uh, and alignment with God the Father uh, is what helps Jesus to stay focused on his mission. And Jesus recognizes that he's not a king of Galilee. He is the king of the cosmos, the king of all nations. And so he must not be detained in Capernaum. He must go to other towns to preach the gospel as well, the good news. That's his purpose. So we've come back full circle from the way this passage began. Because it began with the preaching of the good news, the proclaiming of the good news of forgiveness and redemption that Jesus is all about. But there's something important that had been left out in the earlier quotation from Isaiah 61, 1-2. Jesus concluded his citation with the clause to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. But in the original text in Isaiah, the rest of the verse continues like this. And the day of vengeance of our God. The Messiah is not only supposed to proclaim the ear of the Lord's favor. He's also supposed to bring the day of vengeance. Judgment for the wicked. But Luke intentionally, I think, leaves that out. to serve a theological purpose because we see throughout the Gospel of Luke that the judgment that God brings is not yet fulfilled. The time of judgment and the vengeance of God. In the first coming of Jesus, Jesus proclaimed the year of Jubilee, but the day of vengeance will be fulfilled in Jesus' second coming. 
today. The good news of liberation is fulfilled, but the good news of divine vengeance on the wicked is not yet consummated. It's begun. It has not been fulfilled. Romans 5.10 says that we are all once enemies of God, and by sinning against him, we have committed acts of treason. And this king, Jesus, has come to establish his kingdom and bring the rebels into subjection. And to use an analogy, in his first coming, this king comes with the terms of surrender. This is a costly offer of surrender because in order to reconcile the enemies of God to him, so Jesus must pay the penalty for their treason himself. And that's exactly what Jesus does. We're, tre- we're, we're treacherous people who have no business even approaching the gates of the kingdom of God lest we be killed on sight. That's who we are. And yet the king comes and offers terms of su- terms of surrender and he says to us if you surrender if you renounce your own lordship if you renounce if you stop living for yourself and if you pledge allegiance to me as your king I will pay the price I will die that's what Jesus does he dies on the cross for sins of his people he's raised from the dead victoriously And he promised after he ascended to the heaven, he will return a second time. And when he returns, there will be no terms of truth. There is no terms of surrender. In his second coming, he will come in vengeance to bring all those who refuse him into subjection. And we are people who live between those two times between those two worlds, which is why there are seemingly contradictions in our lives. God's kingdom is here, yet we experience illness and sickness. God still heals today, yet he doesn't heal everyone. Christ has authority, and we have his authority in our lives, yet we still experience suffering and persecution. Because we live between those two times, and because this world is still occupied and under the influence of evil. But our king is coming. And when he comes, those who have aligned themselves to him and have pledged their allegiance to him and have remained faithful to him through all the sufferings of life will be vindicated. And they will experience victory. And all those who have refused to yield to this gracious king will be defeated. Subjected. So that's the choice. Today, we must choose to come under the rule of Christ the King. Please.